On today's episode, Ashley shares the survival story of Danielle Keener and Daniel Zapp, a harrowing story of a second date that turned into a fight for their lives. Welcome to Crime Bar. Uh, good morning, Ashley. Hello. Good morning. You look beautiful. Thank you. You look beautiful too. <laughs> I looked at you like say it back. <laughs> you got some gorgeous eye patches. I can't believe there's um, going to be a point in time when we're actually doing like video recordings of this and I'm going to have to put in effort. I know. Yeah. I'm like very happy with this low maintenance look that I have I know, while recording. It's the beauty of podcasting and we're the ones who are stupid and we're going to try to add this visual yeah. element to it we should have just used our personalities and brains but no <sighs> anyways i don't even know what story you're <laughs> so wow <sorry>. no <laughs> don't be sorry for that it's been days i've been trying to crack my neck like that for days that was nice i did not expect it to happen <laughs> it was deep too yeah i'm so happy we have this like pillow barrier between us because i just realized i forgot to brush my teeth <laughs> it's just coffee blasting back at me <laughs> From the microphone. That's how I feel when I have my masks on. Oh, it's I'm just so, like, so oh upsetting. Oh my God. I think it was a reality check for literally everybody yeah. last year. Yeah. Like I I do have dental issues. I, I think we all do. I think we if all we, have we gingivitis. Did, if, we, if we didn't know. <laughs> I immediately went on Groupon and like bought one of those uh, dentist passes things. Oh, did you? Yeah. I found a really good one. Oh. Um, I, haven't, I haven't used it yet. Yeah. But I bought it. <laughs> By the time... We're like done with this episode. My eye patches are going to be like down my cheeks because every time I talk, they just keep <laughs> no, moving. They yeah, they I keep moving. I can see them lifting up off your skin. Yeah, no, it's not good. It's okay. No one can see us. That's so true. Um, I don't even know what story you're covering this week. I know. Are we doing this on purpose? Did, um, like not telling, yeah, not like sharing. Um, no, I mean, I didn't mean to, but I worked on it when you weren't home. Here. So yeah. I, you just weren't present for it. Um, and I know that you... There wasn't a risk of you doing the same one. Yeah, seriously. <laughs> um, it's I'm doing a survival story. Love that. Okay. Yeah. So I, I kind of like those stories because uplifting. Yeah, because mm-hmm. it's like when you're just researching murder. Yeah. It's, you know, murder's a downer. Um, My very favorite story that I've ever heard on any episode was the Jennifer Mori case. Mm. And the woman a, who, um, that guy broke into her apartment. Exactly. Yeah. That's an insane story. It's absolutely insane. And if you haven't heard about it, Google it because mm-hmm. it is the actual story that made me terrified to be home alone. Yeah. I'm, it was, yeah. it ruined everything for me. Well, it's terrifying, but it's also like, I mean, I think that's true of any true crime stories. Like it's just important to know the, yeah. those stories because there's certain things you don't think about. You would never assume that you'd be attacked in the middle of the night in your no. own bed with a security system and yeah. security guard. I yeah. can't speak security guards and everything. It's so upsetting. Yeah, you can do all the right things and it can still not be enough. So yeah, just in case you want to ruin your day, just Google that. But there's hope because she did survive. Yeah. So this is. I think that's why it just. I like it because it's a reminder that people survive horrible things all the time. Mm-hmm. 
So this is literally taken from an I Survived episode. Okay. I've never actually watched I Survived. It's a show, right? Or is it a podcast? It's a show. I mean, they might have a podcast, yeah. but it's a show. I've um, never, ever watched it. Well, I bought like a pass so that I can watch all of them now. So Mark. now you can watch as yeah. much as you want. I need to cancel it. <laughs> this is ultimately an I Survived podcast now. <laughs> Basically now, yeah. So in this story, we're in January of 2000 in Pennsylvania. I've never been there, so I can't picture what that looks like other than cold. And cold. I assume a lot of Amish people. And snow. Cold I would, Amish I people. Think, yeah, I, I don't know. I think. Yes. Um. So Danielle Keener is an 18-year-old freshman at... Oh, shit. I googled how to say this college name. Yeah. And I don't remember it now. What is it? Susco... Yeah, no, that was it. <laughs> yeah, so. that was it. Um, Susco... Okay. Do you well, want to... Well, you're doing a good job, so just keep trying. <laughs> I'm trying. Susquehanna University? Do you... Susquehanna? Susquehanna? It's S-U-S-Q-U-E-H-A-N-N-A. One name? Susquehanna. Susquehanna. Okay, Susquehanna. I, whatever. I tried. Um, There's only so much time we can dedicate yeah, to that. Anyways. Ten seconds of struggling was enough. It showed effort. Yeah. Her roommate, Elizabeth, described Danielle as a really kind-hearted, genuine person with a great personality and a lot of enthusiasm. And she was really happy starting college. She was really excited. Mm -hmm. A few months into school, some mutual friends set Danielle up on a date with this guy named Daniel Zapp. Dan was also an 18-year-old freshman in college, but he actually went to Carnegie Mellon University. Mm -hmm. His last name is Zapp? Zapp. Z-A-P-P. Zapp guy. Yeah. (laughs) Yeah. (laughs) I love that. Elizabeth said that Danielle was just like giddy after their first date. Like they had gone to dinner and they talked for hours and hours and she just felt like they had a lot of chemistry and she was really excited to see him again. It was just one of those those dates that you just you connect so easily. You know you just, it's going well. Yeah. You just hit it off and you have so much to talk about. So they agreed to go on a second date and they set it for January 8th. So when they were trying to figure out what to do, since it's, you know, January in Pennsylvania, um, Danielle's mom suggested, why not just go for a walk? And they'd had such a nice time during their first date talking so much that they just wanted to have that ability again, like not go to like the movies where you can't talk. So they, you know, decided to do, take her suggestion. Yeah. Um, Danielle lived with her mom and her stepdad and their house was fairly close to these really nice scenic trails. So... They just sort of like went from her house and just started walking. They wind up at a river. So they just kind of stop and they're standing there at the riverbank and they're doing cute stuff, like mm-hmm. trying to skip rocks. And Aww, like they're just ch- like, just it's just a love. cute. Yeah, it's just cute. And, you know, they're just casual and playful. Um, This date had like only just started. They've probably only been there a few minutes mm-hmm. and no one else is really around. I mean, they. They weren't necessarily like in a secluded area, but they it was more of one of those like scenic areas. So it's not like cars were driving not by touristy or, or anything. No, and it's cold outside, so like nobody's outside anyways. So that's when a large red truck pulls up and a man gets out of the driver's seat, and they notice him. But I mean, there wasn't anything unusual about it, and so they just kind of kept talking to each other. But they did notice him. Okay, but then the guy lets out his giant rottweiler and the dog goes charging at this couple 
That's ter- I love Rottweilers, but they're terrifying if mm-hmm. they're, especially if they're not trained. And then the man from the truck's like, don't worry, he's friendly, he just wants to play. We come down here all the time and he plays in the water. So he stands there chatting with them for a few minutes and then he decides to leave. So he starts to walk away before he gets too far away. He turns back and he asks the couple if they need a ride. And they're like, uh, no, thanks, we're good. Yeah. Because like, that's weird. And also we're being cute as hell down here. So So he's like, okay, no big deal. And he gets his dog back in the truck, hops in and he drives away. And it was weird that he offered them a ride, like for sure. But he also seemed polite and harmless and he didn't seem upset that they turned him down. So they just sort of shrug it off and go back to their date. And so a little time goes by and they kind of start walking again. They're kind of just... You know, they're just strolling mm-hmm. along this river. And then they decide to kind of start walking back towards Danielle's. So they're walking back up this dirt path that they had come down. And then the same red truck drives up next to them. So, like, picture this. They're walking down a dirt path. Okay. And the this truck comes up from behind them, passes them, and then stops, like, in front of them to block their path. No. Yeah. Yeah. So obviously they stop walking, but like this happens so quickly. They don't really have time to react or comprehend what this guy is doing. So the man gets out, points a gun at the couple and says, get in the fucking truck. So you're telling me the nice guy thing was an act? <laughs> Can you believe it? Oh my it? God, it never happens that way. <laughs> <laughs> so they are totally frozen in place and just stared at him because they were so caught off guard. Of course. So neither of them really reacted. So the guy's just standing there and he just motions with his gun for them to get in the truck. Yeah. His truck had like um, one of those like lids on it. I don't know what they're called, but like, you know what I'm talking about where the bed of the truck is covered, but not like yeah. one of those flat ones. It was like a, it was a, um, a larger one where like you could sit up and it had like little windows in it. I know exactly what you're talking about. Like yeah. a, it's like a little shell, It kind Basic, of like an igloo, but for the truck yeah, bed. Like, yeah. So if you're sitting in the truck bed, you can literally sit yes. upright, yeah. you know, in it. So he opens it up and he tells them to get into the bed of the truck and Danielle gets in first. She said this, like, it just didn't feel real. It was such a surprising turn of events and she felt like she was, like, in a nightmare all of a sudden. Like, it just, there's nothing about it that felt real. But then the man stops them and he tells her to get back out. And so instead of both of them sitting in the enclosed truck bed, he tells Dan to get in there and makes Danielle get into the passenger seat instead. Both Danielle and Dan are starting to do as they're told, but they're also like in total disbelief. Like it's just literally seconds ago, they were alone having a nice day and suddenly they're kidnapped at gunpoint. And then separated, which is terrifying. Yeah. So the Rottweiler, he was in the truck bed, which freaked Dan out because, you know, he said he wasn't really a dog person anyways. And this dog is massive and being enclosed in that little space with a dog that size is nerve wracking. So also I the mean, combo being kidnapped. Well, that too. A truck bed. It, that, it's just a high anxiety it, moment. All of it together was pretty scary. So once everyone is in the truck and the man started driving, Dan remembers he has a cell phone. So he's already laying down in the bed of the truck and then he pulls his cell phone out and he tries to discreetly call 911. Okay. But this is the year 2000, so yeah. he didn't have any service. I don't know mm-hmm. if that's related to just the, the <laughs> cell towers or, or what, yeah. or if it was just because of where they were, but it, the call didn't go through. And Dan said it was at this point where he realized, I'm going to die today. This is the last day of my life. 
So then Danielle said during the drive, the man started talking all this nonsense about why he was kidnapping them. He tried convincing her that her dad owed some like drug company a bunch of money or something. And this man was going to kidnap her for ransom. And she didn't believe any of it. it like it just didn't make any sense. And this dude seemed like an idiot who yeah. was just trying to come up with a story off the top of his head. He was very erratic. Remember I said that they, they did this walk because it was near Danielle's house? Yes. So they actually drive right by her home and the guy didn't have any reaction. So as she's he's going on this rant about how he's kidnapping her for ransom because of her dad or something, they go right by her house and yeah. he has no reaction. So she already didn't believe it, but that was just confirmation that this was bullshit. He didn't tell her to duck or anything like that. Yeah. So she says as they passed her house, she saw that her stepdad and her brother were standing on the porch talking. How helpless would you have? I mean, there's I no know. way of knowing that no. any of this is happening, but. So she and her brother make eye contact. Shut up. And she like puts her hand up like this, like holds it up like in greeting. Yeah. And he did it back to her. He kind of like waved back. Yeah. She said, you know, she wasn't thinking clearly. She just wanted to make sure that they saw her. So that's why she sort of waved at them. But it was just, it happened too quickly for them to, for her to try to communicate in any way that something was wrong. And it was, you know, it just happened so quickly. But they did have that moment of connection. They made eye contact. Yeah. And they waved at each other. She said that as they drove away, she had this thought, that's the last time I'm ever going to see my house. So they continue driving for about 12 miles. And the whole time, the kidnapper is just talking nonsense. They get to this very remote area of the river and he orders them out of the truck. He tells them to walk down to the water and they do it because he's walking behind them with his gun pointed at them. He has the two stand side by side and he starts ranting and shooting his gun. Oh my God. Like up in the air or just nothing? At the water. So he says he's so sorry that he has to kidnap them and that he has to kill them. He says he's helpless and he feels bad about what he's about to do to them and he's like he's saying all this he kept pacing back and forth and whenever he would say something he would shoot his gun into the river to like emphasize his points so he would be like what am I gonna do now bang you've seen my face I have to kill you now bang that sort of thing I'm so sorry bang and so he's emptying his gun so that's an upside that's a oh I didn't think about that yeah I would have been like keep doing it sir (laughs) (laughs) what else are you mad about keep talking (laughs) but these poor kids are just standing there listening to him rant continually shooting wondering like if they're about to die yeah danielle said the moment that he first shot the gun is when she was like oh my god this is so real this is really happening Mm -hmm. dan is desperately trying to reason with the guy he's offering him anything he wants in exchange for their lives anything he's just begging he offers his wallet he says he'll give the guy his laptop and his car and anything else that he asks for And the man told him that he doesn't want any of that and he doesn't have a choice but to kill them because they've already seen his face. There was no clear indication as to why he made them go down to the water. But obviously he's being erratic, so there's no logic anyways. He's shooting the river. Yeah. pissed at it. Then he turns around and he tells them to get back in the truck. Oh, interesting. It's like a little venting session. I guess. So they start walking back up in the same way where he's pointing the gun at them, walking behind them, and they are certain that they're going to die. Like yeah, at this point, there's there's no doubting it. They are about to die. Yeah. That's a terrible date. They had no idea like why they were being targeted, but it was clear that he had every intention of killing them. So they walk back to the truck. 
They're both pleading with him the whole way. We'll do anything. We'll do anything. He made Danielle get back in the passenger seat. And before he shut the door, she said, I'll do anything. And he just ignores her. He sends Dan and the dog back to the bed of the truck. And he gets into the driver's seat again. And he looks at Danielle. And he gave her this really weird look. And he goes, so you said you'll do anything? No. And she stared at him because she didn't know right away what he was getting at. And then the realization hit her. She said through this whole terrifying ordeal leading up to that moment, the idea of being raped hadn't even crossed her mind at all. But she knew exactly what he had just decided to do. She knew she was about to be raped. Yeah. So she immediately goes into survival mode. She's like, okay, I'll do this. And then he'll let us go. He'll get what he wants. And then it'll be over and we'll be alive. So she slowly nodded her head and she said she didn't know what else to do because, quote, I didn't want to die and I definitely didn't want Dan to die because of me. Yeah. He makes her undress herself and then he starts to rape her. And Dan doesn't know what's going on because he was in the bed of the truck, so he didn't hear that whole exchange. So at one point, the, the car hasn't moved yet. They're not driving away yet. He, Dan sits up to look at them through the window he sees what's happening yeah. and the kidnapper sees him and he points his gun at him and says, get your head down. Yeah. And so he just lays down and he buries his head and he's just locked kids. back there. Like he can't do anything, yeah. but just he's helpless. Sit there. Yeah. He's completely locked. He felt helpless and awful and it was just horrible. And Danielle said that like her mind just went somewhere else during the assault. Her body yeah. was there, but she wasn't there. It was like an out-of-body experience. She doesn't remember it like from her perspective, but rather like a third-person perspective, like floating above the scene. So after the assault, the man stands up, pulls his pants up, and he tells them to get back out of the truck. So Danielle's thinking, okay, this is over. We're going to be okay, and we can go home now. And she asks him, you're going to let us go now, right? You're not going to hurt us? And the guy tells her, yes, I'll let you guys go now. So they're, you know, so they're getting out of the truck thinking, okay, he's just going to leave us here. And he tells them to go back down to the riverbank. They're walking down and they're both feeling just relieved that he's going to leave them. And just like the first time he's walking down with the gun pointed at them. When they get to the water, Dan started to turn his head to look at the man when he says he felt what can only be described as this tremendous force that was so fast and powerful that he couldn't comprehend what happened and what he didn't know was that he had been shot in the neck at point blank range oh my god so he fell to the ground and he starts choking up blood yeah he said he didn't know where he had been shot but he knew he was dying and started to feel really tired yeah danielle is standing there staring at dan's body half in the water and Blood is seeping from his neck and mouth. The water's just turning red. So she drops down onto her knees to get closer to him and started whispering goodbye. And she said, I love you. And that's when Dan's eyes closed. Oh, my God. Dan says all he remembers is saying goodbye, closing his eyes, and then hearing a shot. And he felt Danielle's body fall in the water beside him. Then he felt her get shot again, and he lost consciousness after that. So remember... This is January in Pennsylvania, so it is freaking cold. Now they're like half in the water. Mm -hmm. So when the gunman dragged Dan's body into the icy water, he said it jolted him awake. Oh, wow. Yeah. Yeah. He went from 
slipping away to death. Yeah. To suddenly being completely alert and knew exactly what had happened, where he was, and what the gunman was doing. Yeah. Meanwhile, Danielle only remembers saying goodbye to Dan and then everything went black. She had been shot in the face and the gunman also dragged her further into the water. But unlike Dan, the icy water didn't jolt her awake. She came to a few moments later and realized she had been shot through the jaw and she was floating in the water. And she is down the river. She was just in the water. She was floating in the water. Oh, okay. So she assumed that she had also been shot in the leg because her left leg was really numb and she couldn't move it. Mm -hmm. So she's floating in the water, spitting out blood and broken teeth. The bullet had almost completely severed her tongue and she could feel it flopping around inside of her mouth. She thinks Dan is dead and she doesn't know how long she's been in the water. She doesn't even know if the gunman is still nearby. Yeah, She's just choking and floating and trying to get her bearings yeah so unbeknownst to her this is basically the same moment that dan decides that he's far enough out into the river that he can look to see if the gunman is still on the shore okay remember he was shot in the neck so he can't like lift his head or anything so he's just sort of floats around a bit until he can see the shoreline and it's out it's like out of a horror movie oh yes he sees the gunman standing there calmly watching Dan float in the water. So in a split second decision, Dan closes his eyes, relaxes his body, and he lets the current move him further away as he plays dead. I can't even imagine being able to play dead in that moment. I mean, he's probably freezing, but also losing a ton of blood you and a lot of time immense in. pain, but he did it. Yeah. So that's happening with Dan. And even though he isn't physically near Danielle in the water, she it's that kind of the same time that she starts to look around at this point and she witnesses that whole thing. So in the same moment that she realizes Dan is alive, she's also realizing that the gunman is standing there staring at them. And she also sees that Dan sees that too and watches him play dead. So then she decides to play dead. Smart. And remember, she's like, spitting out her teeth she was shot through the jaw and it's like all she can do to not choke on her own severed tongue so they're both floating and eventually the current brings them close enough to each other that dan whispers to her just don't move just pretend to be dead and he'll leave us alone so we don't know how long this went on for Mm -hmm. but eventually they sneak a glance and realize the man is starting to turn around and go back to his truck so after they watch him drive away out of sight Dan immediately jumps into action and starts swimming and is like, get to shore. We have to swim, get out of the water, keep going, keep going. Like he just, he had survival mode. Yeah. And Danielle was like, I didn't want to, I was so tired and I just wanted to keep floating, but Dan wouldn't let me. She couldn't move one of her legs. She couldn't talk or anything. So Dan is literally swimming with a bullet in his neck and pulling her along next to him. So the current had moved them considerably far from where they had been shot so they were just trying to get to any accessible land like just anywhere Mm -hmm. then they see a man up on the hillside and they start waving to get his attention so they get to shore and danielle couldn't talk her tongue was again literally rolling around Mm -hmm. in her mouth but they managed to communicate to the guy that they had both been shot so uh this man is a local hunter named pete prowell And he goes, okay, I'm going to go get help. And he turns to see there's a red truck approaching. 
he tells them there's a truck coming and he's going to run up to the road to try to flag it down. No. So, of course, Dan and Danielle are starting to freak out because that's the guy who shot them. But Danielle can't talk at all. And it's at this moment that Dan starts to choke up blood so violently that he can't speak. Pete doesn't know this, you know, this this hunter. Yeah. He doesn't even know this. So he's he doesn't know that he they're trying to communicate anything to him. So he leaves them on the shore and goes running full speed towards the truck. So now Dan and Danielle are thinking they're fucked. Yeah. This guy is coming back to finish them off and is probably going to kill this other man too. Absolutely. And they can't do any anything. They There's speak. No, they can't speak. They can't communicate to him. They they have nowhere to go. So they get back in the water and start to swim as fast as they can. They're almost hysterical. They're weak from blood loss and pain and numb from the cold water. So they're just in dire survival mode. And as soon as they get to the middle of the river, they slow down to take a breath and Dan glances back to the shore. And he realizes it wasn't the same red truck after all. And the man who'd flagged them down for help was back at the water with two other people. Okay. So now... They have to I turn feel so around much right now. I'm I like know. sick to my stomach at the visual. So now they have to turn around and swim back. And the men at the shore are like, why are you in the water again? Get out of there. Yeah. So the men pulled them out of the water. They took off their hats and their coats and they put them on Dan and Danielle to try to like warm them up. And I just, I can't even imagine like how cold they must've been. I keep thinking about like how violently you shake when you're freezing. So like and how- And scared. Yeah, and scared. So yeah. how do they play dead in yeah. icy water? I mean, it's just, I, it, yeah. I it's when I'm incomprehensible. Stressed, yeah. My whole body twitches yeah. like uncontrollably. If I just get a chill, I'm like, oh, I gotta get my parka. Yeah. I mean, if you saw this in a movie, you wouldn't believe it. No. It just doesn't sound real. real. No. So Pete said that when he saw them floating in the river, he didn't even realize it was humans at first, but when he did, he ran to the water and dragged them on land. He said they were shaking so violently and impossible to understand, but he could tell that they'd both been shot in the head and judging from the way that they looked, he really didn't expect either of them to survive. Danielle's dad, Brent got a phone call that his daughter had been shot in the face. And he said, as he was running out the door, He grabbed a picture of her and the whole way to the hospital, he just kept talking to her photo, wondering if he would ever see her again, if he would ever get to hold her again. And the police said that this investigation was quite an undertaking because nobody knew exactly where the crime scene was. All the police could go off of was the area that Pete had rescued them in. Mm -hmm. But that was just some random part of a huge river. Like, there's no telling how far away from the lo- that location that the crime actually yeah. took place. And this was <clears throat> this was a huge amount of space to search. Mm-hmm. The cops literally had to walk shoulder to shoulder, all looking at the ground, just hoping to see something. And then they did. Oh, wow. They found a large puddle of blood. And a few feet away from the puddle, they found shell casings. So this was good. Yeah. But something. It didn't actually provide any clues as to who the attacker was. The doctor said that Danielle's jaw was so shattered that the bones and teeth were like Rice Krispies. Both of them were in critical condition and Danielle was placed in a medically induced coma. Dan was awake, but the doctors fear that he could die at any moment because he had such a severe gunshot wound. Mm -hmm. 
So the detectives rushed to interview him to get as much information as they possibly could. And Dan was in such severe pain and he couldn't talk. Yeah. But he also understood the rush to share as much as he possibly could. And he knew it was sort of, it could potentially be a race against the clock that he could die any minute. He knew that. So um, they gave him a paper and a pen and he wrote down everything he could remember. I mean, he was in so much pain that any small movement was excruciating, but he knew he could die. So he just kept writing. He described the man as a white male between 35 and 45. He said the man was blonde, very drunk. He had drunk? A, mm-hmm. Oh, okay. He had a brown hat, blue jeans, black Nike high top sneakers, and he used a black semi-automatic pistol to shoot them. And he also remembered that the man's black Rottweiler was named Sam. Good he memory. Des- yeah. He described the truck and even all the junk that the guy had in the truck bed where Dan had been with the dog. And the detectives worked fucking fast. Yeah. Like they spoke with various police departments in the area and they came across the name William Babner. Babner had a pretty violent record that involved various assault charges and drunk driving and they knew he had a black Rottweiler. So they bring a photo lineup to Dan's hospital room and the detective said he was watching Dan's face as he laid the photos out. And when he put Babner's down... Dan's face just turned. Mm -hmm. He said one of his eyes had been completely swollen shut, but the other one's pupil dilated in fear as soon as he saw Mm -hmm. Babner's face. And he just started hitting the photo with his hand, hitting it over and over again, saying, that's him, that's him, that's him, that's him. Now the cops had to find him. They searched every known residence from Babner's record, every associate. And then they learned that Babner was currently living at his girlfriend's house with her five young children. So not only that, but the police were able to verify that Babner was currently inside the home with his girlfriend and all of the kids were at home with them. By the time, like when they realize that, it's like midnight Mm -hmm. and they know this man is extremely dangerous. So the SWAT team has to wait in hiding surrounding his house until they know for a fact that everyone has left. So they spent all night hiding in alleyways, hiding in neighbors' houses. Yeah. I mean, the whole place was completely staked. Because they don't want this guy holding the kids as hostages course, or an- anything. Anybody, yeah. anybody at all. Um, so when they learned that the kids are going to leave for school around 8 a.m., everyone was waiting for that moment. The plan was to watch the children get on the bus And then as soon as the bus started to drive away, that was the moment to strike. And it ended up going off without a hitch. Flawless. Yeah. Babner was so stunned, he didn't even put up a fight during his arrest. He just completely cooperated. The detective said that every single thing that Dan had described was found. The truck, the contents of the truck, the weapon, the clothes he had been wearing, and of course, Sam the Rottweiler. So he was arrested. That was only two days after the attack, so... Is bravo to the authorities because they worked so fast. So Dan and Danielle, they spent a really long time in the hospital. Danielle was brought out of her coma and she had a really long road to recovery ahead of her because her entire jaw had to be reconstructed. Like physically, mentally, emotionally, every single thing. Yeah. The medicine, the pain medicine caused Danielle to have severe hallucinations of bloody faces and bloody bodies while she recovered in the hospital. 
So even though she was safe in the hospital, surrounded by her friends and family, and knowing that the monster who did this to her was behind bars, she would only sleep for like 10 or 15 minutes at a time, wake up and hallucinate these terrible images, and then drift off back to sleep before anyone could comfort her. So it was like being traumatized again and again every 10 or 15 minutes. And there it's was a nightmare on loop. Do. Yeah. And this whole time, she's convinced that Dan is dead. Oh, she didn't know? Well, her family kept telling her, Dan's alive, he's okay, he's just down the hall in his own room. And even though the last image that she actually had of Dan was him walking out of the river, mm-hmm. she just believed he was dead and that her family was lying to her to like not upset her during yeah. her recovery. It was really sweet. They had, um, on their first date, someone took a picture of them. Yeah. And she had this picture of them from their first date on her nightstand and she just would look at it. She yeah. just looked at it every day. So one day, Dan wrote a note to her and it said, I love you, I'm okay. And that's when she finally felt like she could breathe. She finally believed he was really alive and it just just was a relief. So six months after the shooting, Dan and Danielle were forced to testify against their attacker. Babner would not admit his guilt, which meant it would go to trial and the victims would have to relive this experience in front of an entire courtroom. Evil. Yeah. Danielle said that reliving this experience was horrible and she saw a lot of evidence for the first time during her testimony. Like seeing photos of her clothes and the crime scene was really hard, but knowing her family was in the room, hearing every detail, including the details of her rape, it was just really difficult. You want to protect your father and your mother and your brother, you know, everyone from ever hearing that. But she did it. They both did it. So brave. And their bravery is the reason that there was any justice served. William Babner was convicted of kidnap, rape, and attempted homicide and sentenced to 117 to 235 years in prison. So both Dan and Danielle made a full physical recovery and they both returned to college. But Danielle said for a long time, this man took away her faith in humanity and that was the hardest part to cope with. Her friends, you know, continued living their lives, partying and doing normal college kid stuff. But she had nightmares. She had a hard time being around men she didn't know. She was afraid to be alone at night. Mm -hmm. And then about four months after Babner was convicted, a rally was hosted at Danielle's school called Take Back the Night. It's a really huge rally against rape and violence where everyone is welcome to attend and share their survival stories. I feel like I've heard of this. Is this like a thing that happens everywhere? I think so. Yeah. Yeah. Sounds familiar. It's a big thing. Danielle said, sitting there listening to all of these women stand in front of a microphone and share their stories felt so empowering to her. And so she got up and told her story. Incredible. Her, um, her roommate, Elizabeth said that it was, it was kind of in, they didn't expect her to do it. Um, and then there was a few minutes of silence. No one was getting up. And then she got up and started walking and they all just lost it. Yeah. They just knew she was going to tell the whole story. Yeah. Elizabeth said, we were so proud of her. We were really, really proud of her. Danielle said, quote, I just felt so much power and so much strength. And part of what I felt he had taken from me, I was able to pull back and say, you know what? He may have taken a few things, but there is so much that he didn't take that he couldn't touch. And that is what makes me who I am. Incredible. So Dan and Danielle initially tried to keep in touch, but you know, seeing each other just resulted in them just reliving it over and over again. So after a while they stopped speaking and Danielle 
met a guy in college named Kevin and they fell in love immediately and they got married in 2005. The police chief and the men who rescued Dan and Danielle that day were guests at her wedding and then they've since had a little girl. Dan said that he spent years burying the trauma of this experience, but then he met a girl named Elizabeth in college and she was a really wonderful supportive partner who helped him finally face what happened. So he started going to therapy and he said it just changed everything for him. Getting help allowed he and Danielle to reconnect and formed Good. a whole new wonderful friendship. And in 2007, Dan and Elizabeth got married. Both Dan and Danielle have spoken about this experience publicly and they agree that they feel like the only reason they survived was because of each other. They don't think that they, either of them would have survived on their own. That's like such a unique bond that you... You can, that's just irreplaceable. Yeah. Dan has said, quote, I feel like everything's kind of going in the direction I always wanted it to go. And I'm just really happy for everything that I have right now. Danielle and I are forever intertwined. That's like a connection that no one else can ever take away from us. She's always going to be a part of my life. And Danielle has said about Dan and her life now, it's as though our souls are connected. He'll be a part of my life forever. I'm so happy that I've made it to where I am today. The gratefulness that I have for my beautiful baby girl and my husband that I have, I don't have to think about what happened to me every day. It doesn't define me anymore. I've learned how to make it a part of who I am. It has made me a better person. And Dan has since gotten a PhD in psychology. And Danielle works as a drug and alcohol counselor. And they remain close friends to this day. And that's the amazing survival story of Danielle Keener and Daniel Zapp. Incredible humans. Isn't that so incredible? Crazy. I was so worried, like at the very beginning when they went down to the river. I'm like, does this Zap guy suck? And then to find oh, out, and then yeah. I felt really guilty the whole time oh. that I even assumed it for like a split second. It's easy to make that assumption. Sometimes I, that's how it goes. It goes <laughs> Sometimes the guy is. always did it. No, I'm yeah. kidding. Um, but I also assumed the entire time that they'd end up getting married but I'm very happy that they met Elizabeth and Kevin and yeah. led beautiful lives and remained friends so yeah. that's no one should ever have to go through that but the life perspective that that gives you oh my gosh I know you really pick your battles I after know. going through that yeah and it is like a trauma but like nobody wants to have a trauma bond with anybody but it's nice to hear that they are able to be friends now, you know, and that they can be in each other's lives without it being like a, a negative reminder because yeah. I wonder if they, did they suffer any long-term physical issues? I'm sure they would. Um, I think that they both made it like a physical, like a complete recovery physically. That's good at least. Yeah. Well, screw that guy. That's awful. Yeah. And I can't believe like the girlfriend knowing that her five children so terrifying. Has been in the same home as this man. Terrifying. That assaulted, raped a young girl. Yeah. And who's to say what And those then tried kids, to kill. And then tried to murder Both her. Both of them, I know. Horrible. Insane. That was, I mean, the storytelling on that, I had like the chills constantly, cold sweats, Ooh. nausea. <laughs> yeah. Tears at one point. Mm. The idea that the dad even thought to take a picture before he left and then to speak to that, there's something so... I, I would have never have I thought know. to do that in a moment of like crisis, yeah. but it's so beautiful. And yeah. he maybe didn't think he'd ever be able to have a face-to-face conversation with her again. Mm-hmm. And so there's something about that. Mm-hmm. Well, that was incredibly well done. Thanks. And I'm really happy everyone lived. Oh, of course. Or mm-hmm. Sam. 
Oh my God, Sam the Rottweiler, I know. <laughs> you Google. I know. Poor, Poor Sam these days. Poor Sam. He had to see some crap. Isn't that crazy? Yeah. I know. Well, yeah. You did a great job. Thanks, Tots. <laughs> I was trying to come up with something really quick, like, uh, you're welcome, honey buns, but I panicked. <laughs> panicked and just laughed. No one has called me toots in so long, so it was so flattering and exciting. Oh, well, but, you're welcome, toots. Mm-hmm, yeah. <laughs> I have a really good story for you next week. Do you? Yeah. Not a survival tale. Oh. But it's uh, it's heavy, so. Oh. Buckle up. Heavy, heavy. Yeah. Hold on to your butts. Oh, okay. All right. All right. Well, I love you. Love you, too. Bye. Bye. Thank you for listening. If you enjoyed this episode, please rate, review, and subscribe wherever you enjoy listening. We owe everything to the many journalists, authors, filmmakers, psychiatrists, and psychologists whose extensive work and expertise we pulled from to share this episode with you. For all of our detailed source material, please visit our website, thecrimebarpodcast.com. If you'd like to see content from today, you can find us on Instagram and YouTube at Crime Bar Podcast. We really love doing this show, and if you'd like to help the continued creation of it, you can support by donating to our Patreon, which we have linked on our website as well as our Instagram, patreon.com slash crimebarpodcast. This episode was hosted by Ashley Brumley-Johnson and Ana Katerina. We'll see you next week.